This week, we present, first up, the security news. We're going to discuss how ransomware is growing at 118%. Cyber criminals adopt fresh tactics and code innovations. Period tracker apps share data with Facebook. Did I, did I read that? Anyway. U.S. Cyber Command trolls North Korea with a malware release. And a whole lot more how gamification, uh, how I really, I don't buy it. Uh, at all a new vulnerability in intel cpus how uh i have some thoughts on firmware and attack vectors and i want you to prove me wrong uh and all that and more on our second segment peter smith the founder and ceo of edgewise will be talking about some really interesting challenges when it comes to security in uh aws and amazon's aws cloud um some really really interesting stuff uh, Peter's got some awesome, uh, awesome content on it, so I'm excited. We'll then air some pre-recorded interviews from the Social Engineering Village with Chris Kirsch and Mika. All that and more on this episode of Paul's Security Weekly. This is Security Weekly for security professionals by security professionals. Broadcasting live from G-Unit Studios in Rhode Island, it's the show where exploits run wild, packets aren't the only things getting sniffed, and the cocktails flow steady. It's Paul's Security Weekly. Effectively securing your organization and its reputation requires a smarter approach. To maximize efficiency and minimize risk, security experts turn to Logarithm, the only leading solution built solely for security teams by a security team committed to your success. With NextGen SIM, user and entity behavior analytics, network traffic and behavior analysis, security automation and orchestration, and compliance, Logarithm provides security made smarter. Is your IT team ready to face the next implementation or upgrade? Do you have a pool of talented team members who are trained and ready to support your organization's growth? The right IT skills development platform can get you past the IT skills gap. With training content that's so engaging, some even call it binge-worthy learning, your team will watch and learn more with IT Pro TV. Get a free team trial of IT Pro TV today. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash IT Pro TV. Are you an enterprise dissatisfied with overpriced analytics software that can't keep up with modern data? If so, then GraphWell is the solution for you. GraphWell is an unstructured data analytics platform for enterprises who demand total data visibility across their network. GraphWell lets your security team go beyond the SIM and fuse data sources to correlate and answer questions you didn't know needed to be asked. Go to graphwell.io forward slash security weekly for an unlimited data trial and gain uncompromising visibility today. Hello, welcome to Security Weekly. I would like to introduce you to a man whose hat is not nearly as cool as my bald head. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Paul Asadorian. Welcome to Paul's Security Weekly. This is episode 619 being recorded on September 12th, 2019, right here in G-Unit Studios. Although most of our, our hosts, in fact, all of our hosts for this segment right now are on the lines remotely. Uh, starting with Mr. Lee Neely. Lee, welcome. Good afternoon. It's great to be here from the uh, home Idaho office. Um, looking forward to a great show. Cheers. Yes. Fresh off the heels of DerbyCon, uh, you and Mr. Jeff Mann, who's also on the lines remotely. Jeff, welcome. I am fresh off the heels of a lot of bourbon in uh, Louisville. And... Uh, 
DerbyCon was very special, and uh, we have something very special planned for everybody as soon as Mark can get to it, but I know it's going to take a lot of work. Yeah, I mean, uh, well, I won't spoil it, but we have a lot of footage, yep. and we've been using the word, like, documentary. I don't know how appropriate that is, but it's fairly appropriate. Uh, the opposite of, of appropriate, rather, is Mr. Joff Thayer, who's with us, very bald. Oh, no, you had that right the first time. <laughs> uh, I'm just uh, I'm just sad that I wasn't there at the, the last DerbyCon. I actually had a had a record going. I'd been to every single DerbyCon except this year. So my own fault, but uh, I'm, I'm looking forward oh, to it. Dude, you could have got a challenge, one of those special challenge coins in, the, in a black I, badge I, and all that. To, no? I'm looking forward to see the documentary or the... Whatever we're calling, we'll call it, it pseudo documentary for now, in case it doesn't the, turn out that way. But the, the pseudo make me a documentary. Yeah, yes, that too. <laughs> it's very nerdy. Um, exciting news about a webcast program. We're partnering with IC Squared as an official CPE provider. If you attend any of our webcasts, you get one CPE credit per webcast. You can um, go to securityweekly.com forward slash webcast and get all the ones that uh we're about to do or slash on demand which takes you to the ones we did we did the one with jeff and steve from logarithm and it was really awesome i'm telling you what if you're considering putting or using services in the cloud and want to understand the factors that go behind uh security decisions this is the webcast for you uh, Jeff and Steve are both DevOps engineers that put logarithms, uh, were the primary people putting logarithms um, product in the cloud as a SaaS offering. So I, I learned a ton in this uh, webcast. So um, what else? Uh, that's it for webcasts. Uh, Hacker Halted will be in Atlanta, Georgia, October 10th through the 11th. Jeff and I will be there uh, presenting. EC Council is also offering a $100 discount uh, to our listeners for the two-day conference, if you use the discount code HH19SW, you can go to securityweekly.com forward slash hacker halted as well and register there. Uh, and now we're going to do the security news first, which is kind of weird. Normally we do that last, but we're doing it first. Uh, so I'll turn it over to our illustrious panel. Is there a story that you would like to start with? Sorry. I only had 17 stories this week. Yeah, really. <laughs> but I only had 13. Um, but uh, Joff, Jeff, did you have one that jumped out at you? or? Oh, DNS. Oh, God, DNS over HTTPS. <laughs> what, a, what an abysmal thing to do to DNS. Yeah, I want to do that one. Let's yeah, do I, that one. So uh, it, there's a, a number of reasons I'm not really excited about this. I do understand why. Right, because you don't want people snooping on your DNS queries. So I guess, like Joffa, you're alluding to HTTPS is one way that you can accomplish that. Um, yep. it, are there other ways to protect your uh, recursive queries, Joff, cryptographically? Uh, yeah. There, um, well, there's a number of things, right? I've um, looked into this before. It gets it's really confusing, and there's a lot of options, but yeah, yeah, there there is. First of all, you've got to go back. And remember, historically, and, and I am channeling Paul Vixie here, yeah. who I literally had a conversation with last year at Wild West Hackenfest about this yeah. very topic. And, um, you know, to paraphrase Paul for a minute, he was absolutely dismayed at the concept 
that uh, that DNS would would be transported over the the HTTPS protocol. And one of the reasons is the original design, and this is me speaking now. Uh, the original design of DNS is a distributed name system. There is a caching resolver that is close to you on your right. local network. Also, okay. UDP, so that it's fast, and the so it's fast. The high, protocol, high the protocol on top of uh, UDP, right, takes care of some of the issues you have with a connectionless protocol. So, so if you do appropriately have a caching resolver deployed on your network, right? the leakage of data is much less because you'll only get the first thing it needs in its cache until that TTL expires. And so you're not always transmitting DNS requests out across the internet. You're transporting them just across your local network for the most part. There yeah, is but my, some... my, caching, my caching server still needs to go out to the internet to get... It, it does. It right? needs to refresh its cache when the TTL expires. There's no doubt about that. So... Here's the other thing. Well, wait. There can you hold on? Go back to that for a second, Joff. Can your caching uh, recursive name server locally use DNSSEC to talk to either the root or other DNS servers to go get those initial queries and cache them? That would be. Well, is that an appropriate well, usage? Well, you're 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 mixing two concepts. Remember, DNSSEC is is more about uh, appropriate uh, validation that the correct answer got to the caching server right it is not it is not about encryption uh, it's not about it yeah yeah it's not yeah. about the you know, the, the privacy it's an, H, it's an it's an hmac like uh mechanism right it's, it's all more about it's more for integrity yeah. not privacy does that sound? correct okay yeah gotcha. it's more about more about integrity not privacy so okay great um but there is a specification for dns actually over tls which few people are aware of oh and no that is, i read about that yeah yeah and and that is actually opportunistic on beh behalf of the resolvers uh that the port number is 953 if i remember correctly yeah. and dns will attempt to negotiate a resolver to resolver tls connection if if that is configured and available to it so you know the fact that we are reinventing the protocol and sending it over https I think is um, I I just don't see it as a good idea. I mean, it's 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 actually going against the design of the original protocol, and there has already been efforts to appropriately implement um, TLS into the DNS protocol in the proper way, assuming that you're running a resolver that is geographically near to you. Now you don't care if your client system is talking to a resolver on your ne local network. You know, that that's right. it. That's local but, by definition. But right? now, what I don't understand is this is uh, being talked about as DNS or HTTPS coming to Chrome. But doesn't Chrome make a call to the operating system or no? Does it? Normally, what? Chrome should be resolving DNS against the operating system. It would have to. Okay. I mean, it has to look at my host. Well, I mean, that's not a DNS yeah, lookup. What, but it does look they, at my host file, for example. Well, what they're doing is wrecking that stack, right? They're instead nailing up an HTTPS connectivity from the browser off to some DNS resolver, Ew. probably at Google. Right. right, so they're bypassing my operating system's DNS resolver? So, so you know, who's who's looking at your DNS now? I mean, seriously. I yeah. mean, th th this actually bothers me. I'm this not, I'm not stinks. happy about it. This stinks, stinks for a lot of reasons. Um, yeah. It is against the protocol design. And, and for, for crap's sake, 
I, I will, again, paraphrase Paul. In fact, I will quote Paul Vixie on this. I asked him, what do you think of Google's resolver at 8.8.8.8? Okay. Paul did not uh, at that time make a disparaging comment about Google. Paul's response to me was, there's a lot of sheep in human DNA. Hmm. And his response, <laughs> his response, and I shit you not, was directly aimed at the idea that DNS by design was designed so that you run a local distributed resolver. Right. It is not a centralized protocol. And it just, I, I just, I'm furious about this entire direction of DNS in general. I think it's a disaster. It should never have happened. And we should stick with the RFCs where DNS, DNS can opportunistically negotiate uh, TLS between the resolvers. That's the way to do it correctly. And that's, that's where I'm yeah. staying. There's just too many variables for me in terms of can it actually make the the SSL connection? Uh, does it does it look into my host file? Does it fall back to regular DNS? And then what about all the other applications on my system? How I, are I, they going to be I resolving? Get... Like you're saying, Job, DNS is meant to be uh, versatile like that, and it doesn't matter. Like I, the point is, I get an answer. The how is all those different scenarios that DNS will go through to attempt to resolve the name on top of what your operating system does and looking in host files and other, and other things, oh. largely which is broken right. in today's I, Linux I, systems. I, but. I, totally, I totally get the um, privacy angle, but yeah. honestly, you can configure your own stub resolver that forwards to nobody but the root servers which are any cast right. routable but then my then my ISP system. but then my ISP can see that unless I if put that resolver it, yeah if uh, I put that resolver if, on Amazon's or somewhere on the internet right and then I'm no, 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 you SSL don't want to do that. you don't want to do that you want to put the resolver in your local network and send the cached the caching uh, recursive queries up to the root your ISP right, but, they, if they look at that yep. they are looking and snooping on your traffic Sure, that's that's potentially a problem, right? But you're not sending your DNS queries to a central authority. You're sending it to the roots, which are trusted across the internet. Right, and but they can't snoop on it. And I think that's the point of putting it over HTTPS that, is so that it can't be snooped. That's right? the privacy concern. Yeah. And so, look, why are we not talking about proper DNS over TLS between the uh, caching resolvers? Because that's where the discussion should be. Yeah, I agree. Well, I agree. Sorry, Lee. The other... The other thing is, didn't didn't a few years ago we went through a lot of trouble for DNS security? You didn't allow port fifty three direct out from any old host, or, uh, TCP or UDP. You you put it to the resolver and the, re the local resolver, and it was a thing that could talk to the internet exactly. because there was yeah, a lot of bogus the right, crap out there. That's the right way to do it, Lee. That's the right way to do it. Here's the other thing. Remember, when you have a centralized resolver on your local network, there's not individual client identification. I mean, I did this for large universities. There was fifteen to twenty thousand subscribers talking to two servers. Okay, mm -hmm. those two servers were responsible for the DNS resolution. The only thing an outside party knew was what those two servers were sending up to the roots, right? If they chose to look, that's the way the thing is designed. Right. Yeah, you're right. It I does anonymize your internal IP and look like the resolvers are going out to get the answer. That is that right. is a good point. Chuck. So yeah. so this is an abomination. I mean, it just makes me furious. Yeah. But. 
I don't imagine the troubleshooting how you're having really... things not work from the browser and work from the OS or vice versa. Can you imagine? Yeah. Um, yes. It resolves it one way at the OS and another way in the browser. Yeah, see, that's a disaster alone, even if you don't take the, uh, you know, big sand hill that I just stood on, right? I mean, that's a uh, – just there's there's no good words, right? Just because you don't understand it doesn't mean you reinvent it badly. <laughs> I mean, come on. It's a great quote, yeah. Jeff. Jeff, did you want to weigh in? Um, I was going to ask someone to just play devil's advocate or just at least say, you know, what was the goal? What were they trying to accomplish here? Uh, albeit poorly, according to Jeff. Yeah, well, I, I think the goal, the goal is privacy. And I think to make it really easy for the average user to configure their browser and or their phone, because there's options that you can put on your smartphones that will uh, basically protect the privacy of your DNS lookups. So if someone were to look at them over the network, it would be encrypted. So they can't see what website you're going to, right? But well, that, you're, yeah. that, you're trading, that, you're trading that off. You're trading that off with the data analytics that the provider of the DNS yes. is going to drive from you. Yes. Right. So they, I mean, but, conceivably, because of bills that have been uh, rescinded, um, you know, conceivably, they could say, well, people are going to Netflix more so than anywhere else. So guess what? When you use Netflix, you have to pay an extra fee to the ISP and things of that nature. Now, I think the a great technical solution to that, if you're concerned about your ISP snooping on you, is to stand up a DNS server somewhere on the Internet, create a secure tunnel to it from your ISP to that server on the Internet, and then let it do your DNS resolution and heck have two of them, right? One in Amazon's right. cloud, one on DigitalOcean or whatever, and, and, and do it that way. That way, your traffic is encrypted to your resolver. Your resolver is doing DNS like the world intended, and it'll be a, a little bit of a hack. I think better than just trusting randomly that Google is going to send your DNS traffic over HTTPS. I think we've beat a dead horse. I don't know. Well, <laughs> my only comment, you, you made the statement, and Joff made a similar statement about uh, average, you know, Yours is more recent, so it's in my memory banks. The average user can configure his browser. And I, I, my first thought is the average br user doesn't configure anything. That's true. They just, they just use. So, you know, maybe we're the, you know, we know better. But is there a benefit if we can all take a deep breath and step back to the real average user that has no idea what we're even talking about, but needs to have some sort of general protection or, or uh, I don't trust Google or anybody to think that they're being completely altruistic. But uh, I, I agree, Jeff. I think there's a level of um, training in terms of privacy that is separate from security that, that mm -hmm. needs to happen to the general population that may not understand that if you use your cable provider's email and their DNS servers, that there could be potentially some privacy impacts and uh, really interesting things that happen, like when you host your email, for example, and you want to switch ISPs, well, now your email is there, right? And just basic yep. things, people that people I talk to are still uh, in that situation. Right. All right, horse beaten. Okay. Uh, well, speaking yeah. of user training, um, so there was this whole article on the gamification and how it can be used to provide a level of awareness and training to your employees. And I tell you what, and this largely comes from Ira uh, Winkler, and Ira and I had a conversation at um, 
Layer 8 conference, and I thought it was really, really prolific. In fact, um, I, I hope Ira gets a chance to talk more about this. In fact, we should probably bring him on the show to talk about it, because I bring it up every time now we talk about end-user education. Basically, it was what I said when we interviewed Chris Hadnagy, is that rather than teaching people to look for things that might be malicious and teaching them what's malicious and what's not, why don't you just create hard and fast rules to prevent the bad after effects from happening if they fall for a fish because i believe the attackers are always going to have some new mechanism some new technique some new tool some new tactic um, some new script some new thing that is going to trick a user and the real way to protect yourself is to put processes in place that say if whatever situation happens i do this and not this similar security guard we were talking about with chris hadnagy a couple of weeks ago so these things that say, well, gamification is the way to do it. The American Psychological Association says competition increases psych psychological and physiological activation where, which prepares employees' minds for increased effort and enables higher performance. And higher performance leads to, get this, higher performance means being better able to detect and thwart security threats. And that's what the statement I have issue with. Just because you have higher performance doesn't mean that your ability to detect whether something is an attack or not has increased. If you don't have that fundamental knowledge, you're not going to detect it. If the attackers are using something different, really higher performance means you're just going to get pwned faster. Yeah, I don't <laughs> disagree with that. I mean, I, throughout history, if we can go that far, uh, you know, hackers who are often described in the media is sophisticated in using sophisticated attacks. We know that they usually exploit something relatively simple, like say mm, weak passwords. Yep. Um, and and they're also, for the most part, and I know there are you know there's always an exception, but for the most part, they're going after targets of opportunity. They find some way to break into something, and they go see who's vulnerable to it, and then they see if there's some way they can monetize what they've found so you know the whole idea i have a problem with gamification as do you I, you know i don't think security is a game i think it's a puzzle it's a big difference I but i also think that um, you know as soon as we train our users to uh you know not do one thing um you know, the hackers, the bad guys will come up with some variation, as you said, that will defeat them. Um, somewhat of a case in point, I got an email about a week ago, uh, f you know, ostensibly from uh, our internal security department saying we did a recent phishing activity and you clicked on something and and now you have to take remedial training. And uh, I don't object to taking remedial training uh, if, in fact, I did click on something. But I'm usually pretty good at catching stuff. And if something got by me, I would like to know about it. So I wrote to the to. Uh, oh, wait. I thought this was going somewhere different. I thought there was a link in the email you had to click on, and that was the fish. Because that oh. would be an awesome well, fish. Well, <laughs> wait, wait for the punchline, Paul. You're getting ahead of yourself. Sorry. <laughs> I, I shot an email to the uh, to the to the security office and and said, "Hey, what was the thing that I clicked on?" Yeah, 
And uh, they said, well, you know, we don't have the details, but you should sign up for the training. So, yes, in the original email, it had a link to click on to sign up (laughs) for this remedial training, to which I commented back to my security group. It's kind of funny that the behavior that you're trying to Mm -hmm. correct in me, you're 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 encouraging me to do so i'm kind of like i'm not clicking on it right and and we'll wait and see what happens so i don't i you know i tweeted about it anonymous you know i was like yeah i didn't say it you know people can connect the dots now if they're listening but i didn't say it was my own company but and uh i'm not going to say what the you know the the uh, vendor is that we're using uh but, you know, it just seemed kind of weird that, gee, you know, you're asking me to click on a link uh, because, I've, because I supposedly clicked on a bad link. That even if it's not a fish, it just seems like a stupid way to reinforce good behaviors or, or discourage you from bad behaviors. Just a thought. Yeah, well, in email phishing is <clears throat> difficult in this context, right? Because you can't say never click on a link. Or never open an attachment. Because even as a security people, we know that sometimes we have to click a link in email and click an attachment. And then it comes down to, well, who do you trust, right? And that's out the window. I think I've pretty much decided I I should just never click on a link again. Pretty much. I mean, because as Joff will attest to, once you compromise one user in the organization, what if you were to use that account to send phishing emails to other people? Well, then it's coming from, hey, Jeff at Security Weekly, send me an email. Well, I trust Jeff. I'll click the link, the email address, I can check all those things, right? Um, Right. It's harder with links. I think file attachments can can be solved to a certain extent, right? There's other ways, I think, to more securely share files. And furthermore, not just securely share the files, but trust who's giving you the file. I think we're further along in that technology. Uh, would be m- my assessment, but links are links are hard because then once email, so you make the rule like I'm not going to click an email. That's a bad rule because someone's going to send it to you in Slack, someone's going to text it to you and via SMS or send it to you via Twitter DM, whatever the case may be. Right? LinkedIn. I mean, there's a million different ways to send people messages now. I really think people are sticking with email because it still works and all their tools right. are built around email. When that stops right. working. They're going to start picking these other ways to send people stuff, and they're still going to be successful, in my opinion. I agree. I I guess at the end of the day, I think in terms of security awareness for the user workforce at a company, I think there's more to it than just simply teaching them not to click links or or more generically teaching them not to fall for a phishing attack or – to be more specific, as you said, you know, the, the phishing attack, the phishing attempt, whether we come up with a clever variation of the name for it, depending on the attack platform, but it can come from anywhere. Um, right. I, I, I just think there's more to it to that, which is probably goes to what Ira and Chris are saying about, you know, why don't we redirect things to the, you know, the more positive behaviors and the, and the absolutes that will prevent, you know, the bad things from happening rather than sort of focusing on the the, ne- the the negative elements of it. I, I am curious to hear what Ira has to say about it, so let's get him on the show. Absolutely. Um, I think look, the other one, one Go ahead, thing John. Oh, just as a last comment mm. on that, uh, all of us are susceptible, right? I love clicking on shit. Send me the right stuff, I'll click on it. Right? <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, it's a trust, a trust issue, and... Uh, 
you know, trust can be exploited. Well, yeah, I mean, that's the thing. So, it, it, Joff, you trust me to click. I put a link in Slack earlier. You probably clicked on it, right? Because Whoa. because you thought it came from. Me. <laughs> but that's not the point. Joff and I will trust each other, right? But what if mm-hmm. Joff's not really Joff, or what if someone's impersonating Joff? That that's the real. I think one of the real problems with with all of this is how do you verify the the identity and how do you know who is trustworthy? But not who, but if you can trust that identity at that particular time. Yeah. Uh, how much do you trust CVSS? Any comments on <laughs> CVSS? Ooh. That could get deep. I thought I mean, we were going ver- version two we were or version three. That, but, okay. I, well, Gunter Allman um, wrote an article this week um, about CVSS, and basically it can be summarized as what we've always said about CVSS, right? I, he says, I would caution any bug hunter, security analyst, software vendor, or device manufacturer to not rely on CVSS as the pointy end of the stick for prioritizing remediation. It is an important variable in the risk calculation, but it is not an adequate risk qualifier by itself. I think he summed exactly. it up very nicely. But yeah. does he go on to say what is? Because, mm. mm-hmm. again, lacking lacking any other resource, and I, I, I'm curious as to whether he was referring to version 2 or version 3, um, but a lot of people don't have anything else to work with. But I, I think more than anything, this is this is sort of a recent trend, and and we know some of the other companies that are doing this. We've we've found all the vulnerabilities, and I've seen the statistics. I can't quote them exactly, but you know, something like eighty five percent of the vulnerabilities out there score on the CVS CVSS uh, ranking. You know, whatever the number is, that means they got to do something about it based on. Gee, how far into the show did we get before I said PCI? Well, um, I think I think Jeff, it, it comes down for me that what CVSS lacks in terms of what uh, uh, in your own organization and what you're missing, right? And if you're saying mm-hmm. that organizations don't have anything else, uh, they just they they haven't created the process to to do that because it's not something else you need it, per se. It is. Um, well, in when, a word, it needs context. It needs that's what, it. That's so the word. I, I, is, is it two things? Is it probability and impact that it's missing, related to your own yeah. organization? Or the I, those can't be the only two things. Those are the two things that come to mind. But I think probability yeah. and impact. Uh, well, to pro- use kind of the fa- is it fair that is the the risk assessment? Uh, probability for- and impact pertain to the risk. The vulnerability is the vulnerability, uh, and I think right. part of the confusion is we 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 try to um, we over over uh, complicate <laughs> this thing yeah. by by trying to simplify it too much. If well, that makes sense, it does. The CVSS score even matter if I can if I have a method for measuring probability and impact if it's a cvss 1.0 it could still be a very high probability and have a very severe impact right so in that in that context cvss means nothing to me if i can do probability and impact right it all comes down to local context and that's what's missing right i mean it's nice to have a a base measure that that gives a place as a, a starting point right but that's really all it is it's the rest is a local context local impact um, and organizations, you know, either have their act together on that or they don't. And we, we see people that are all over the map. Some some understand the assets they're dealing with, understand that the risks 
that they're prioritizing against and have a very good matrix that that takes CVSS into account, but it doesn't treat it as the primary score. Yeah, I think e ease of exploitability is a good thing that CVSS helps define, which you still have to extrapolate into probability and impact. Lee? No, I was going to say, you remember when, when they had all the uh, hubbub about uh, vulnerabilities in medical devices, and then it all calmed down because you had to be like two feet from a person. That doesn't right. mean it's not an unfortunate exploit, but you're not exploiting that from across the, the pond. You, you've got to be right next to somebody to do something. Or, you know, in, in the context of your company, you have a hugely vulnerable system, but you've built firewalls and other rifle and segmented it and all this stuff that it's still vulnerable, but you need that context. Right. Uh, and I so, just look at the score by itself. Doesn't, it, can't, doesn't work. It's interesting you say that, Lee, because the Logitech keyboard ones, actually Sam told me about this one, um, that you can basically hack into wireless uh, keyboards that in turn can execute commands on your system. And they said, well, they can do that, um, you know, remotely. And, you know, it's they don't need an Internet connection. They just need to be in range. And I'm like, well, isn't it more of a probability that you're going to be attacked if you're connected to the internet than not because that means someone has to be in physical proximity now right. what i will say is some of the most interesting specifically wireless attacks that i really have not seen certainly at any scale um when we were uh, writing the book and you know doing threat modeling and brainstorming it was always like it'd be really interesting if we took this logitech keyboard attack right and we said, well, someone has to physically be there. And I'm like, well, someone doesn't necessarily need to physically be there. Someone just needs to have control of a device with the right hardware and software on it to be able to exploit the vulnerability. And I always thought that one of the coolest vulnerabilities and uh, attacks you could ever construct would be if you took something ubiquitous and off the shelf, uh, you know, like a Windows laptop with a, even a certain chipset of Wi-Fi, and you could turn that into something malicious that could attack something like a keyboard or attack something like an access point or attack something wirelessly, now you've just really opened up the attack surface. I think we benefit from the ubiquitous nature of technology and computing in that those attacks are, are much less feasible because of that. Um, and so uh, it was Dan Kaminsky, right, that did the work about, uh, what was it called, where... Uh, monolithic uh you know versus ubiquitous computing right because there's different versions of technology we largely can't pull off those attacks at scale but uh, i i truly believe that that's coming at some at some point on some scale so i think i can summarize what's wrong with this article up in the second paragraph where the statement is the security industry has always struggled to score in quotes the significance of the threat posed by a newly discovered vulnerability. Um, mm. Threats are something else. Vulnerabilities right. are something else. I think what they're trying to say is more like, you know, the impact or the probability or the likelihood. I think that's what they're trying to say. But when you start throwing these terms together, right. trying to simplify these things, I think that's where people go off. I don't see in any anywhere in the article where he suggests the alternative. Um, which is fine if you if you have a problem with CVSS, great. To to finish my earlier thought, mm. I think a lot of the vulnerability companies are struggling with. You know, we've discovered all these thousands and millions of vulnerabilities, and now we've got 
you know, what this article cites, bug bounty programs that are, that are, you know, finding so many more vulnerabilities. And I, there was some conversation I overheard over this past weekend at DerbyCon about some of the dollars that were dropped on bug bounties um, in Vegas, I guess, during DEF CON. And, you know, people are like, yeah, you know, there was a vulnerability, but it wasn't that big a deal. I'm paraphrasing. But grossly. see, now, I think but, yeah. I think this attack is what I described, though. Mm-hmm. It sounds like that he can infect a system through some other means, then use right. the Logitech wireless chipset to then infect other and snoop on keyboard strokes of other Logitech wireless keyboards that are um, uh, vulnerable. Because the dongle, you know, like a USB dongle that's plugged into your uh, computer, what they described in the article is... Like, basically, it's got, like, a mini kind of, uh, maybe not an operating system, but at least a system on a chip that you can uh, control and take uh, take over to use to infect other things. That, right. to me, is really cool because it really changes how you would evaluate that vulnerability, that threat, that type of attack against your organization, right? Because it opens up more of the attack surface. Well, we should have a separate section on <laughs> or a separate discussion on the on, on the risk equation sometime and, and try to drill down on this. I, I hear what you're saying. Um, you know, back when I first learned risk equations back in the DOD, to your point, talking about the, the you know, the probability or the impact, we, we looked at it in two different ways. The probability that an attack would be uh, launched Mm-hmm. We called them attacks back then. Yeah, you know, that would actually be attempted, and then the the probability or the likelihood that it, if launched, would it it would be successful. And very often, yes, I agree. If somebody you. could get to it and try it, it would be completely successful. So a lot of emphasis and weight was placed on the likelihood or the probability that somebody could actually you know, get to the point where they could do the exploitation. I think that's I, yeah. sort of what you're touching I, on. I, I, and I agree, Jeff, that probability and impact are very multidimensional, right? There's a lot of different uh, factors that go into each one of those categories. But again, again if not using the CVSS, what what's somebody supposed to use or rely on? Well, I, well, I think it's how you use the CVSS, right? Exactly. Use that to. I was actually sure a he point said, I was going to make. I've gotten data calls where it's like, for this system, how many uh, vulnerabilities CVSS score of of eight and above have been around for more than thirty days? And it's like, well, yeah, but where's the context of whether they matter? You're just right. asking for how many I got. Um, but that's a compliance mindset, right? And there, in that, in the, there's risk. there's so many uh, statistics out there about. Well, vulnerabilities that are X number of days old are either exploited or not exploited, and breaches happen, and historically, and all that stuff. But that's still, that's still someone else's data that they're. Looking at. It's not you, right? So, mm-hmm. I, to look at age and then look at the data that's been collected about breaches, for example, and apply that to, well, I don't need to fix things that are less than thirty days old because, according to statistics. Um, they're they're not exploited right as often or whatever. I and I agree. Really, I think that's I think that's bad practice. It's it's bad practice. I actually think in this in this case that you should just patch stuff and have a process right. for patching stuff. Not worry about doing all the fancy analytics. Being like, there's a patch <laughs> available. Let's just apply it and and move forward. And I I 
truly believe easy, applying that. Easier, easier, easier said, said than, than done. done. The enterprise, right? So I found a I found a sentence towards the end that I do agree with, and I think sums up where he's going. And and I would agree with it, except for I think it's I know what he's saying. I'm not sure if it's if it's clearly stated. And the sentence is simply: CVSS isn't and should never be used as a risk score. And what I hear him saying is people see the CVSS score, you know, as a result of the scan engine and they act upon it without applying any of the other things that we've been talking about, like probability or impact, which is basically assigning risk. Right. You know, where is where is the device or system in question in your network? It, you know, is this an Internet exploitable, remotely exploitable vulnerability that's sitting on a system that's 20 layers deep in your network and only two people have access to it. Th those are the types of things that people people too often have just taken the raw score or whatever the score is from scan engines and acted upon it without applying any kind of what does this mean to my environment? What does this mean to the systems in my environment? And, and I think that's what's missing, and I think that's what we're all agreeing on, including the author or the. Right. That they but I think using in the site. context of scanning is important because you may see this really high severity vulnerability in RDP. Look at the systems you know about and go. I use largely Linux systems, and the Windows systems I have are all either not vulnerable or not running RDP, so I'm good. However. <laughs> In your scanning engine, the uh, high CVSS score that's exploiting uh, Blue Keep. Did I get that right? It's a Blue Keep. It's, it's Blue Keep. Blue Keep, right? If that does appear in my network, then it's a high priority, right? And, mm -hmm. and so your scanning engine should absolutely use CVSS for things like that. Well, pulling the Blue Keep thread for a second, I mean, my number six is basically that up until just recently, there there wasn't a published exploit for BlueKeep, so the the risk of exploit was much lower. Now there's well, an exploit framework uh, has a BlueKeep exploit, so it changes the need and nature of patching BlueKeep. I mean, we I don't want to pull the why have you got that exposed to the network or why is it on when it doesn't have to be. I'm just saying it changes the risk model around. Well, and that exploit in Metasploit is is somewhat neutered in a couple of different ways, but. Like, but, but, yeah, okay. But I just reason. I'm not, I, I, think, I think Rapid7 and the Metasploit team are being uh, both responsible and allowing researchers to do, to do their mm -hmm. research and people who want to test for the vulnerability, right? They're trying to get the best of both worlds, and so I get it. And they all, they're also quoted as stating that they're not going to necessarily leave it uh, in the state that it's in today, which requires some knowledge and or skill, depending on what your, your goals are and what targets you have. Um, they're not going to leave it that way forever. They're like, this, if that's the way it is for now, that might change. We might essentially make it easier for people to use this exploit down the road. That also, that's your degree of exploitability, right? I mean, how easily can it be exploited? What's it take? That's part of the equation in terms of how much you care about a given vulnerability. I, I completely agree. I think ease of exploitability absolutely plays a factor in the equation. Which is a hard thing to measure sometimes, too. So. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, uh, NSA, trying to keep up with cybersecurity initiatives, has uh, engaged in a reorganization. My article number five. I won't dwell on it, but I can't tell you how many reorgs I lived through in the mere yeah. 10 years I was there. Gotcha. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's uh, 
Hey, can we but, talk about the Netcat story? Because that thing makes me really laugh out loud. Sure. <laughs> yeah, Let's it's sort for laugh. network cache attack. Uh, it's a side channel vulnerability that could allow users to sniff out sensitive data. And they quote, such as someone's SSH password. Although from reading the article, it looks like the, uh, going back to ease of exploitability, that it's very opportunistic and therefore got a pretty low severity rating. And But Intel's recommendation for uh, disabling performance optimization features also has me very worried, mostly because I write really crappy code and I need all the help I can get to make my apps run fast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but but really to the point, who the heck would name their exploit Netcat, for fuck's sake? Oh, yeah, and then there's that. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> well, how about NC for short? Oh, that's a great idea, Jeff. That's unique. Yeah, it's a little bit of name collision there going on. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and here I always thought that referred to, to Norton Commander, but no. Look, look, I'm, I'm going to give him a break. Maybe it's lost in translation. After all, they were an Aston. Right, right. <laughs> um, my story know. number five I thought was interesting. I pulled a quote out from an article that was titled, Firmware, a new attack vector requiring industry leadership, which piqued my interest. They state in the article, the emergence of firmware as a new attack vector has reignited an age-old debate within the industry. Who is responsible for addressing device cybersecurity? Is the device manufacturer or the company purchasing the device? Um, the chicken and egg problem, blah, blah, blah. Now, first, firmware attacks are not a new attack vector by any stretch of the imagination. Um, second... The device manufacturer absolutely must be held responsible, at least in some capacity. It's their device, their product, largely their software. I mean, they could be using other people's software. But so they have some, they have some responsibility, if not a lot of responsibility. Uh, third, just as we would purchase software as a company and do our due diligence to make sure that it meets our requirements, which should include security, you are also responsible for discovering any vulnerabilities, backdoors, or misconfigurations that also apply to your firmware. Why is that any different from anything else, right? Prove me wrong. You remember when firmware updates used to be difficult? You had to do things like put jumpers on the motherboard and other, or, or run basically boot off of something instead of updating, and now you can kind of just update them in line with your OS patches. Yeah, that but that, you know what's bit, funny, that though? That makes it easy to put bogus stuff in there. Yeah, you know what's funny? That opens up a, a whole new attack vector, which I guess, I don't know if the article went on. I didn't see in the article where it explained this, but lead to your point, let's take motherboards, for example, before UEFI, um, and long before lots of other BIOS <laughs> you know, versions and revisions, your BIOS mm -hmm. update was a bootable DOS floppy, right? That you had right. to boot your system off of. And then it would go and use that software to update your operating system. And then you took that floppy out and rebooted your system and you were off to the races. And that's how uh, a BIOS firmware anyway, uh, back in the day was updated. Now today with UEFI and so many manufacturers and uh, Eclipsium does great research uh, on this. Uh, as, and I, I briefed with um, uh, Lenovo uh, on this as well. Now today it's all connected. Right? So the operating system itself, to your point, you don't have to boot in the floppy anymore. That means the operating system has direct access to the, the firmware, hardware, and firmware that's running on it and, and can access it. But it's a, a lot of cases, it's a two-way street, right? I can write to that firmware. Firmware can write to the operating system. 
uh, and, and therefore it's increasingly becoming, I think, more of a serious problem uh, and an attack vector, although nothing, no, nothing certainly new. I mean, the early no. viruses, right, would overwrite your master boot record and, and corrupt your system. So, you know, it's always been that kind of, that's always been in play. I guess I should say. Now Jeff. they just send you a bill for the present. Oh, wait, right. that's called ransom. Yeah. Yes. Jeff, you got floppies. <laughs> oh, I got right. floppies. Somebody mentioned floppies. This one right here is labeled Satan 1.0, released 4595. That's awesome. I can't oh, read I, it, I, but I, I've got it. I mean, I, I hate to be nitpicky. It doesn't look very floppy to me. It looks kind of hard. So, right? Uh, I mean, <laughs> I actually well, have people. He's just glad to see us. <laughs> I actually that have the question. Do I have any floppy disks? Wait, I, I think Jeff, they're all these. Joff, I mean, are you going to say people don't know what this little save icon means? <laughs> right. Because that makes no, me I feel don't. really old when they say that. But wait, but wait, I, 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 close I've got, up. I've got lots of stories. But what I does this people... do? That's the yeah, right. That's the right. That's the right protector. Right protect. Um, right protect. Everybody knows that. Not everybody. Okay. Hey, uh, what's uh, the other hole for? Do you remember? <laughs> Paul, I'll let you take that one. <laughs> I had that. that was, did the, that hold was on. Now, in identity. all seriousness, oh god! In all seriousness, what what did that other hole signify? Because it was either open or closed, right? Well, <laughs> if I remember correctly, so there was a right protect tab on one side, one side. and the other side I thought was for the high density floppies. It had that extra hole. That's that bad. one. That's the, the high-density floppy sensor hole. Uh, Three mags versus 1.4. Okay. Yes. I, I, now i got to look go at all my floppies and see said. if they have a second hole. Oh, wait. There's one without. There you go. There you go. That's a low-density. Or is it 720K versus 1.4? 720K versus 1.4 megabytes. That's right. That's right. Wow, that's that not a lot. Right. Why do we know this stuff? That was awesome. That was... I, 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 if I knew that, I forgot it or maybe never knew it. Maybe I was... Only maybe my floppies only had holes. I don't know. Hey, I'll, I'll never, I'm waiting for Jack I'll, I'll to pull out forget, a flippy no, floppy. I have, to tell a flo I have to tell a floppy story. A floppy story. <laughs> <laughs> and we have a title for the episode. <laughs> Thank you, Joff. Bottoms up. Floppy story. <laughs> floppy story. <laughs> my, my favorite floppy story. By the way, okay. Completely Wait, you have more than one floppy story. <laughs> A completely ADD moment. I've got my uh, my my Star Trek uh, uh, glass. Here. Very nerdy. <laughs> oh nice. baby. Yeah. Oh yeah. I'm not. I'm not fucking around. Is it the okay. is it the voyage home where they go back in time? Ah, uh, yeah. I think it is with the oh, whales and stuff. Movie. That was on TV the other morning. I had that kind yeah, of yeah, on yeah. in the background. They've got this big ass tank. Tank. Yeah. Shit. And Scotty's so going, "Hello, forward. computer. Hello, computer to the mouse." Yeah. yeah. With, I'm with out. Computer. The computer. Wait. Hello, computer. That was, that yeah. was a classic. classic. Okay. No, anyway. I got to tell my floppy story now. <laughs> All right. I, I had a um, so years ago. I used to be, and I'm talking years ago. I used to be a consultant for faculty and students. Um, and, and Paul's probably had this role as well. But anyway, mm -hmm. one lovely young lady, and I always enjoyed it when lovely young ladies came to see me <laughs> um, for, for unknown reasons. Um, but oh, one, no. <laughs> one lovely young lady came in one day and she pulled out her little purse. She had one of those really cute pocketbooks and, you know, had anyway, she pulled out her floppy disk from her purse. And when she pulled it out, it was a five and a quarter. We're not talking a three and a half inch days, okay? It was a, it was a, it was a five and a quarter. And it was just excited it to see you, Jeff. 
it, it, she pulled it out, and the thing is curved like this, right? And 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 on the label, it was beautifully, beautifully typewritten. <laughs> <laughs> and, and she says to me, she says, I don't know why it's not working. <laughs> um, anyway, that's my floppy story. She she put it through the typewriter, didn't she? She totally put it she through, the, put it through the typewriter. Oh, oh God. Boy. Yeah. Well, I, I Sean, as long as she didn't touch the little pill circle thing, she's all right, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Look. <laughs> Look, full full disclosure, I had stupid guys do stupid shit too. So yeah, <laughs> just mm-hmm. just to keep it e- equal opportunity here. But yeah, they uh, tried to yeah. put these in the typewriter. Figure that yeah, one out, yeah. right? I had I did have a guy. I'll tell you, I had a guy come in. Same thing, five and a quarter. He pulls it out of his back pocket and it's folded neatly into four pieces. And he was wondering why it wasn't working. <laughs> did, yeah. Oh, you know the hey. shelf on the in in the car behind the back seats that used to exist anyway for the coops. You know that yeah. is not a good place to store nine track tapes in the sun. Yeah, they tend to melt, don't they? Yeah, I yeah. found that out. <laughs> it, it was sad. Oh, I had one. Uh, I think for Jeff that he'll get a kick out of because he likes to to poke at, at Bruce Schneier. I think you've come full circle, but um, infosec will poke at him. Infosec profit Bruce Schneier. Uh, is only as famous as half of Salt and Pepper. Salt and Pepper being the <laughs> female rap group uh, from the, the 90s. Push it, push it real good. Yeah. Um, so uh, <laughs> apparently they put together a list of popularity and there's security people on it. Uh, I don't know the whole thing. Redskins list. It was list. based on Google search records or something like that. Something Not ridiculous. That they're tracking what we search for. Numbers four and five apparently on the list are Bruce Schneier and Troy Hunt, respectively, who rank alongside Sandra Denton, Peppa, from the 1980s hip-hop duo Salt and Peppa. And... Uh, English football player Lucy Bronze apparently plays French club or something. Um, well, so, hey, I wanted to. I added this one just because I thought about. I remembered it just like ten minutes ago, so I added it. If you refresh, but uh, a couple of our own got shout outs in uh, uh, in in the article that I posted about Google is trying to finally going to fix a problem. That they had with their calendar that uh, was discovered by a couple Black Hills folks back in 2017. Yeah. Oh, nice. We, we got that some press. That would be Mike Felch. Mike Felch and Mike uh, Bo, Felch Bullock. And Bo Bullock. We got some press over that, which is yeah. uh, pretty awesome. And uh, yeah, we had to give Mike and uh, Bo, you know, appropriate, you know, spankings or something. I, I don't know what yeah. we gave. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Oh, yeah. Lee, you had a tampon or period store. Was it period like. Yeah. Menstruation period? Is that what you're talking so, about? So there, there are these mobile apps that are designed to track health things. This particular one was a period tracker. It was designed to track menstruation cycles and fertility. And it collected a lot of biometric data, which, you know, you, make a, you can make a big data set from a bunch of users and then predict trends. That part, okay, but they were sharing that data with Facebook. So, you know, Jane Doe is going to be fertile today, is available on social media or maybe even more sexual facts. They weren't sharing social security numbers. It was just kind of weird that they were doing that. I mean, the message is when you're tracking health information, be sure where that app is storing Wait, it. So, like, it updated your status, like, is feeling fertile today? Is that- <laughs> Pretty much. 
<laughs> I, mean, I, I, I don't know what they were thinking. I mean, I could definitely see, you know, building a big, you know, Oh, we know exactly what they're doing. But holy crap. I mean, that could be useful. Is feeling grumpy today, right? That I, would be. <laughs> <laughs> Keep Mr. It, happy it's away. The day to, it's the day to bring home chocolate and flowers. Yep. Yes. Oh, that 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 would be worth the sport. Never mind. <laughs> yes. My wife, who thinks what we do is silly and doesn't have anything to do with this, she saw that on Facebook and was talking about it. So yeah. it, 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 it made the real news. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you said, huh, you think what we do is silly. <laughs> well, well, I mean. If you want to get silly, well, we could talk about XKCD. Yeah, oh, yeah. I, I mean, it's it really it. unfortunate their forum lost 560,000 accounts. But what caught mine is that somebody did an analysis. Number one password in the dump was password. And number two is correct battery horse staple. You remember the KCD commercial, <laughs> use the passphrase. Oh, that and was I tell people, use the passphrase, but never use correct battery horse staple. How Freudian <laughs> or not. Well, I guess correct battery horse staple one would be okay, right, John? Yeah. <laughs> Is that a trick question? <laughs> I think that was a trick question. <laughs> I knew I'd get a laugh out of him. That's why I asked it. So I just thought that was a little bit on the light side. That, uh, you know, they got hacked and that actual combination was in the data dump. I was like, wow, I absolutely <laughs> crazy. Hey, on plus the, one password length <laughs> on the absolute lightest note. If, if I can close this out with one one more story, just to just to uh, encourage everyone to tune into HGTV. I don't know how many weeks the, the, the series is running, but they HGTV went out and bought the real Brady Bunch house that was used at the beginning of the show, just an aerial out exterior view. And they they have reconstructed it and refurbished it to actually look like the real Brady Bunch house on the inside, which was just a series of sound stages 50 years ago when I used to watch it on TV. Right? That's a pretty cool hack. I mean, that is kind of like it, a hack, it, right? Yeah. yeah. It's a very cool hack. Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. There's some cool photos in this article, now, by the way. It looks very familiar. But uh, now watched... what's, what's interesting, though, is when we talked about passwords a moment ago, um, on not so light of a note, the uh, how ne a nearly forgotten... Uh, physicist shaped your internet access. Uh, Dr. Corbato uh, recently just passed away at the age of 93 um, and created in the 1950s, according to the article. Uh, Lee and Jeff, you may remember, uh, you're probably <laughs> out of college by then. But um, he says, uh, with multiple users sharing one computer, uh, in the first multi-user operating system, it sounds like they were describing, files had to be assigned to individual resources, uh, researchers, and only available to them. That led Dr. Corbato to develop the password system uh, in a system now familiar to everyone. Every user was given a unique name and a password, and their files, files were stored in a way uh, they're available to only that user. That was, that was in, in the 50s. Wow, Masha Brady did not age well <laughs> <laughs> sorry i had to say that well she's like 62 years old uh three so dr corvato's uh solution was to develop an operating system called the compatible time sharing system ctss paul but seriously 
Find a picture of Jan Brady and tell me if you don't think she looks like Cindy Gula. Okay. All right. We'll do that on the break. How's that? Okay. All right. And with that, we'll take a short break and come back with um, our in-studio interview with Peter Smith from Edgewise. Stay tuned. <laughs> 